everyone, and we're live. You're tuning to Cosmic Children. I'm your host, Kevin. And today I have a very interesting guest in the studio with me. So I was introduced to her by my partner, and I think she was clamoring for the longest time that I should get her on the podcast. And I'm glad that we finally found time to do this. So Marilyn, could you please introduce yourself to those who might not know who you are? Hi, I'm Marilyn Tan. I am a writer, artist, um, famous pervert, linguistics major, and proud, filthy lesbian. Okay. In one of your previous podcast interviews, you you described yourself as a degenerate poet. So oh. I would like to start there. Um, could you please describe uh, or, or even explain uh, why the degeneracy? I also don't remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it has to do with the idea idea that I deal often with obscenity, with <laughs> filth, um, with the vulgar and the profane and um, degenerate, of course, um, stemming from the idea that there is a legitimate poet poetry, right? There is a legitimate literary canon in which we are all supposed to aspire to, like being a real writer, a real artist. And um, I think a lot of that has to do with respectability as well, which is the the other big thing that I talk about in my work, right? Because as um, queers or as people who practice alternative religions or imaginations of being, this is not often accessible to us, right? It's not something that we should have to mold ourselves to fit right so um i think by kicking down that door or or removing that standard which often is very unfairly applied to women as well right um it kind of serves that purpose like you are actively making space for um the filthy bastards in your life is that a conscious decision to to that that you are geared towards that or was it more like a subconscious thing I think it was definitely, um, when I first started out in, you know, performing poetry and I did that because, you know, I wanted a captive audience to like listen to my poems, right? So you can't leave the, I mean, you can leave the room, but very often people are nice and they'll just stay. Um, I realized that there was a lot of, um, this sense that people people gravitated towards a certain aesthetics and a certain norm, a certain um, way of signaling, you know, I'm progressive, but I also tick all the right boxes. I, you know, I appeal to the audience in, in a very particular way. And I don't know if this is... Um, this is specific to the Singaporean scene or it happens all over the world. But I, you know, as I do, I get very bored. So when I get bored, I tend to get destructive. And <laughs> when I get destructive, okay. you know, it tends to, you tend to want to um, sort of rip apart those conventions. And that's where, you know, the whole like, let's see how far we can push this goes. Because um, every time I thought like, oh, this is the day I'm going to like get banned or this is the day I'm going to get you know, stopped or, you know, blacklisted for doing things. And I'm sure I have, right? Um, it didn't happen and people mm. seem to love it, right? Yep. People are always like, oh, wow, why don't you talk more about this horrible thing? And I'm just like, wow, okay, sure. <laughs> then why isn't anyone else doing it, mm. you know? Um, and I think it just kind of stemmed from there. Like, why reproduce something that everybody else can, re anybody else can reproduce? Would you be able to share a little bit as to what the the traits of these performances might be? Like, what 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 is the timeline we're looking at? Is it like in the early 2010s? Or mm. what, what are we looking at? 
Um, I think I started in late 2013. That was the first time. And before that, I was already writing poetry, but very much for myself because I was kind of still in school at the time, right? So, you know, this um, little poly kid, um, fresh out of poly or whatever, just kind of um, seeking artistic community. And then, you know, like, as you hear other people perform and as you see what gets responded to and rewarded and as you see what doesn't, you know, you kind of, um, whether you like it or not, develop a very fine-tuned sense of like, okay, this is how to appeal to an audience that is, you know, this demographic. Um, some people are good at that. Some people are not. Um, and I think that go like it was a very quick trajectory right because then in 2014 i performed a lot i got invited to you know like do shows with people and i think one thing you can say about the the spoken word community in singapore is it's very uh, welcoming of new voices right because it's easy it's um got a very low barrier to entry you just go in uh you go to an open mic and whether or not these people like it um maybe they're a bit drunk or whatever <laughs> they just sit there they're just like whoa yeah you did well but you don't actually know if you did well right so um, I think that's why a lot of people start there, right? Um, it's, it's quite comforting, right? To have a, a bunch of, um, I guess artists or writers do that for you. And I think as I spent time there, I noticed that there was a, quite a huge, um, queer population also in the spoken word poetry scene. And, um, but I noticed that they weren't really talking about any of the things that, I enjoyed in queer literature, right? Because if you if you think about queerness in lit, um, you think about the sex act, you think about sexuality. It's obviously linked to desire, to pleasure, to all those things. And of course, you know, you have your typical feminist, like, yeah, I masturbate. I I I love. I don't know. I I don't know what women like. I guess (laughs) I like walking on the train, and I don't like getting my titties stared at, Mm. but only you know in an empowering way, that kind of thing. You know, so um, that's fine. Blah blah blah. The discourse gets um, it only goes so far, right? If you're not talking about it from an intrinsically queer perspective and i think that even though i met a lot of um lesbians or queer women in the scene it wasn't something that i found reflected i I didn't feel like my own perversities or like uh inclinations towards the ugly or the hard-hitting were i guess reflected right so then it comes to me like oh how do i then bring this across you know like how how do I put my experiences across in a way that's also um, relatable to people as, as much as you want to pander to an audience, but also um, authentic, right? So that line between being very glib and very authentic, that's, I think, where a lot of us struggle. Interesting. Um, I, would like to take a, I would like to take a little tangent. Um, I would like to ask for your definition of the word queerness, uh-huh. because the concept is, is, it is pretty foreign to me. So I would like to know <sighs> how, how you would describe it and if that description has changed since you started in 2013 to right now, it's the year 2021. Okay. Yeah. Kevin wants to get to know queerness a bit better. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I think um, it's always been very fluid for me. Um, I don't 
think that, okay, because I used to identify as bisexual, right? So I would just very happily tell everybody I'm bisexual, I'm bisexual. And then I, I feel like I got more and more gay as the years <laughs> progressed. Mm. And I don't know if it's because, um, I, I felt delegitimized as a bisexual person. And you know, because people are always like, oh, well, if you're bi, it's kind of like a cop out. And I, I did write poems about this. I'm like, oh, I'm not a real gay. I'm just, you know, gay, gay light, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, like the 40 day trial of being gay. And um, I think it got to a point where I realized like I genuinely did not enjoy dating men or I genuinely did not enjoy like dating most cishet men and I think like that willingness to to admit that to myself um kind of came like at a time where I was also performing so it kind of made its way into my identity right um but for me I think it's hard because I definitely feel that there are some people um, this is gonna be very problematic, but there are some people who, you know, they they're like, oh well, um, I'm bisexual. I'm part of the gay or the the queer community, but um, their involvement in community just goes as far as that. Just you know, oh, I'm bisexual. I may be attracted to women. I've maybe slept with one, or maybe I haven't. It doesn't matter, right? What matters to me is like, what does what does community mm. mean? So not really queer, but what does you know, like you being a part of queerness mean to you and to us right because you can't i mean sure you know you can identify as whatever the hell you want like in your bedroom it doesn't matter i can identify as doraemon it's fine but it's not it's not gonna mean anything to anyone if you don't act on it right and i think that that's why i found i found myself in a lot of queer spaces when i was actively trying to reclaim being queer which is weird because i dated a cishet man for um two and a half years right and then when i got out of it i was like okay this is my time to be gay again because <laughs> like you know before that i was dating um women or or uh you know like trans men or what have you so it was it was kind of my first and last time dating as this head men for um any amount of time and i felt i felt like i had to prove to myself again that i was gay i mean obviously like not every queer person needs to do that for themselves right but it was just weird um it sits between the idea of the personal and the political right like are you queer enough to be able to call yourself that to be able to draw on that community and as anyone any bisexual will tell you sometimes they just you know just poof and like people forget about them like or they're not counted right if you're, you're like okay tell me like who the queer people are in your group it's um it's going to be very seldom that i think bisexuals come to mind in in a lot of circles mm. yeah i don't i don't know if that's your experience as well i unfortunately have Little to no experience because Kevin has no gay friends, huh? <laughs> Part and parcel because I'm a total recluse. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> we must take you to a party. Just kidding. We're gonna party. It's yeah, we're gonna party. You know? <laughs> <laughs> wink, wink. So I'm, 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 you, you, you mentioned the word community with queer, queer community. So I'm just curious to know your experience with that because, uh, what was it like? Could you paint a picture or like tell some of your experiences with it? Um. I mean, if you start with community, I think usually you start with Pink Dot, but my first, I think, experience or um, my first sort of baby step into queer community was actually volunteering at Ugachaga. So Ugachaga is this non-profit um, 
sort of like mental health and community organization for you know lgbtq individuals and what they do is they run a hotline right so um and they do para counseling for people who kind of just need a listening ear and because i was doing um, a psychology diploma at the time so i was like okay perfect you know i can like help all these troubled gays being a troubled gay myself <laughs> um, so it it kind of became this thing where i would meet a lot of uh older um, queer people and you know like listening to them counsel people or i mean even going through the training of like okay these are the these are the issues that people have in the gay community these are issues that plague for example trans women um specifically or these are the issues that plague bisexual specifically it kind of um was like a crash course into singaporean queerness mm -hmm. right and it was so fascinating because you would sit around in this room full of you know like would-be para counselors um and you know this trainer would come in like different trainers on different weeks uh would come in and then they would talk to you about their own experiences being counselors and or just you know being queer people and um i think back then it was so funny because like um there was this conversation uh, we were having about sex toy custody and like who should get to keep a sex toy after a breakup and it was just amazing because this older lesbian was just like just get a new dildo <laughs> just buy a new cock guys just buy. i was like it does make wow, sense um Yes. Then, like me thinking in the back of my mind, like I don't have money to buy a new one. <laughs> you buy more, more practical me. reasons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. So I think seeing people interact like that, even right, listening to those conversations was very useful. And um, I mean, not useful as in like I would go and use it for myself, but kind of shaped my understanding of how to relate to all these people and then of course when you start meeting um different people in the scene for example in in the art scene or whatever because i so many gay people in the, in the art scene right like everywhere you go it's just a just a homo everywhere it's just homos and then um so i got um i got into like queer groups of friends which is i think something that i really enjoyed having because when i was in school there was no such thing right mm. i couldn't i was the only gay eskimo so like there was no <laughs> no one to share the, the yeah <laughs> not to share the the hate or the love or the anything right um yeah. and then you end up dating the only other like queer person in the class and then you know um so I think because of that and because of my continued um, forays into activism and art, I think that really kind of um, sort of held me, right, as a, as a burgeoning individual in the world, for better or worse. That's a very interesting image. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being cradled. Yeah, yes, you are. <laughs> um, conceptually, do you think the idea of queerness is a bit strange or even foreign in Singapore? Um... I think that we borrow a lot of our ideas of queerness from um, foreign media because that's, you know, kind of the only place we used to get it, right? Yep. And then, you know, when things like Peculiar Chris came out or... Um, what is yeah, that? Oh, Peculiar Chris, sorry. It's, um, I'm giving Kevin like a crash course on queerness yes, <laughs> right now. It's very fun. Um, it's this sort of landmark novel uh, that was published, I think, in the 80s, if I'm not wrong, about um, this queer man's journey it's not not a very 
I don't want to say it's a very bad book. It's not very good. It's just one of those books that was um, revolutionary mm. for its time, right? And it, it was from Singapore. And then, you know, when you talk about um, the literary queer canon in, in Singapore, you always talk about Peculiar Chris. And um, I think a lot of how we understand ourselves um, is also us looking out to the world and seeing, okay, you know, um, maybe Taiwan has this thing we can borrow, you know, like the way, um, for example, um, Taiwanese butchers dress, right? So um, I think a lot of like in Taiwan or Shanghai or whatever, you have a lot of these um, ways of being like lesbian uh, aesthetics, for example, they are borrowed. And, and even those aesthetics are borrowed from like whatever's trendy at the time, right? Like K-pop or, you know, um, Japanese um, aesthetic. So I think for Singaporeans, because um, A, we were a colony and also because B, um, our native people have now, are now also minorities. You know, I think there are different pockets of queerness or, and the understanding of queerness uh, is also culturally informed, right? Mm. If you talk about, say, uh, Chinese butchers is going to be different from if you talk about like Malay butchers or, you know, like hipster butchers or literary butchers or jocks or whatever, right? And um, it's kind of interesting to see how we police each other as well um, in the queer community. Like some people, you know, I mean, oh, how do I, how do I put this? Like, for example, right, post- um, post the AIDS crisis, there was a lot of sort of like um, hyper-masculine posturing amongst the gay community because they didn't really want to be associated with, um, I guess, weakness as femininity, I mean, or femininity, femininity as weakness. And therefore, you know, you have this whole like hyper-masculinization of, of gay men. And then I think that's trickled down to today because, you know, a lot of gay men also kind of um, are straight passing, but you, I think you see more uh, less and less of that now. So I think queerness in Singapore is is also governed by our understanding of other nations' queerness and also our own cultural um, anxieties around power or um, strength or desirability, right? Like if, for example, I find fat people um, sexually attractive, like that's going to be, um, that's not going to be a norm um anywhere really in in either the gay or the lesbian community or the trans community or whatever right so um i think it's it's just one of those things that are endlessly um negotiated and contested because we because questions of identity of course have always plagued mm. the minority much more mm. than uh the majority at hand right like have you ever wrestled with your identity like you know how did you come to the conclusion that you were kevin a certain way you know like did you have to like come out to people <laughs> you like, know, like, like a party <laughs> no <laughs> um I, I think to answer your question more specifically i think um you can associate okay so so let's say to, to answer your question um you can associate myself as I can also see myself as a Kevin because mm. that is the conventional way of getting things done. Yeah. And if you were to 
explain um your whole thesis as to why you might not want to associate as Kevin and as something else, I think not a lot of people would have the attention span and have the the capacity to take like a two hour explanation like that. So yeah. I think for for a lot of reasons, yeah, I can answer to Kevin, but on the other side, I think when you think about things and stuff like that, I think the the more you 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 think about how you are in relation to different things and what you have experienced and stuff like that. I think the idea of Kevin kind of just diminishes and you're just something else. So, mm. but as I say, to explain that to everyone you meet, I think that's a little bit too much. And if there's no alcohol involved, I think it's going to be very awkward. So, <laughs> I feel like you should try it. I think it'll be a good opener. <laughs> as I say, the, I'm, I'm a re- recluse. So mm. yeah, it's, it's, it's specific. Yeah. 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 But I think, right, um, when you talk about inner lives as well, um, there's a sense that people with rich inner lives have done a lot more reckoning to kind of define themselves to themselves, which I think, you know, maybe you have. And so I don't think that that's something um, specific to the queer community, right? It, it's for ev- anyone who feels like um, they don't really... Um, they can't really be reduced to a certain set of essential traits. Mm. And I find that kind of comforting, actually, right? If you talk about labels, yeah, sure, labels are like a shorthand. Like when you say you're a recluse, right? Like what does that mean for us? Like, yep. Do we treat you a certain way? Do we like, you know, automatically understand things about your life that, you know, we have to kind of make space for? Mm-hmm. And I think that... um Labels only go so far as to kind of tell you maybe what is essential in that mm. moment, right? Because I'm, I mean, I do go around telling people I'm gay, I'm gay. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I will have you know I love titties, but like, <laughs> but it, it may not be relevant, right? Mm. And I think that um, from what I can see on the internet, Generation Z is doing a lot to change that because I think the assumption now is everybody is some kind of genderqueer or, you know, some kind of like um, whatever, like non-binary or, I mean, not everybody's non-binary. Please don't quote me on that. But like, you know, it's the, the boundary lines are getting more and more blurred. And I think that's quite fun. Kevin's boundary lines are getting blurred right now. (laughs) (laughs) So I think like questions of identity kind of, because, um, okay, when you talk about being a queer writer, especially, right? And when you write and when you submit to journals that are like, oh, we would like um, people of color to submit or our minorities, sexual minorities to submit or whatever. Um, I always get this feeling like, I don't really qualify. I mean, I don't in the context of Singapore because I am Chinese, right? And obviously very, very comfortable, very privileged um, Chinese, uh, middle class, uh, English educated, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you have your queerness and then, you know, some people can say, oh, you know, like you just sort of use that as... um your token calling card and say yeah i i am minority and like this is why my story is important this is why you know you should publish me or whatever and i don't know how to reconcile that you know it's kind of like saying um where is your niche you know like you need to find a certain slant to be like oh yeah i'm different from everybody else but i don't know it it feels cheap to Mm. kind of base the merit of your work solely on your identity politics 
Would it get to a point where all these labels become unhelpful? Um, I think they, yeah, definitely, right? Like, what are the labels for if you're talking about um, specifically queerness, for example? I think um, for me, it's never really been helpful to say to cishet people, um, hey, I'm whatever, right? I'm queer because like, who knows what that means, you know? Um, I just go around licking the clits of women. No, but um, I just think it's easier for people to find each other. Like if you say, um, okay, I'm a, I am have a massive piss kink, for example, and you go on the internet and you say that and everyone's like, yeah, I'm perfect, just like you, you know? So it becomes, um, a, it becomes a community rallying call, right? And I'm sure like you've had those moments as well. You find people who are just like you and then you feel comforted. But for anyone who's not in that that in group, you know, it's like, oh well, that means nothing to me. It's- you mentioned something about um Gen Z being a lot more open about uh these things. Yeah. Would you be able to do you have a reason on it, even like an explainer to yourself as to why uh this current generation is a lot more I guess for, for for lack of a better uh, word, open. But you notice it too, right? Like, do you see? Do you have the same experience? I guess I can, I can make assumptions for what I can see online. Yeah. But as I said, I don't go out, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't have anybody who is yeah within the scene or anything like that. Yeah, I saw this tweet. Um, I think it was maybe by my friend Justin, but I'm not sure. But he, I think he said, "I'm the reason I don't come out as non-binary is I'm too old." So there is this pop. There is this certain expectation that you need to be of a certain um, like burgeoning sexuality or you know burgeoning gender uh to come out as like one of the cool non-binary like um it's like school over again yes exactly it's like puberty right i'm too old to go through puberty one more time Mm. um and i think a lot of us like have already had that puberty moment but i think the reason why i think gen c is more open about it is I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna speculate and say, oh, it's because of the internet. <laughs> but I really do think it's because of the internet. <laughs> and I think TikTok and, you know, for better or worse, whatever, Chinese spyware and all that. But, um, I think being able to find each other has made such a difference in being able to articulate what they want, what they don't want, what, who they are at such a much, much earlier age than a lot of us were even able to, you know, kind of have the vocabulary to talk about these concepts to ourselves. And um, that's why I think, you know, like I've I've considered as well, like, you know, maybe I'm non-binary, maybe there are certain like days in the week I would like to not express my gender as a way. But um, on some level, it just seems so tiring, you know, it's like, Man, now I have to reckon with whether or not I want boobs today. Like I would, I would love it if I had a modular body, right? If I could just like change out parts of my body, like you know the like the Mister Potato Head in Toy Story. <laughs> That's a very and oddly specific reference. <laughs> That's almost like twenty years ago. I I'm, I'm almost thirty. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean, right? It's like, um, 
sometimes I really wish that human existence could be like that. And then I tell other people, like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could all upload our consciousnesses to, you know, the cloud and then we could... Have you seen that um, Black Mirror episode? Which uh, one? Sun, Sun, Sun Junipero? The one with the social credit score? Uh, no. So what, Sun Junipero one? is the lesbian one where, you know, she kind of gets uploaded to the cloud. Then, you know, they can like... Uh, rotate through decades right yeah Um, and they're you know in different outfits every time and whatever and like different get ups and I just found that like so freeing you know like what if every like you know every Thursday I had a cock or something and everyone's like it's cock day like (laughs) it's cock day (laughs) today I have testicles you know Um, and I think being able to kind of hold space for those desires is something that Gen Z is quite, I think, more successful at doing than previous generations. I think largely because they can imagine, you know, really, really like different ways of expressing sexual appeal and Mm. and desirability than we have had, Mm. right? Um, I mean, have you seen the cat boys on TikTok? What is a cat boy? Oh boy. <laughs> Are you going to show it to me later? I mean, I can show it to you. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, okay, like, all these uh, fey little feminine, um, not boys, but I guess they are kind of boys um, dressed up in, you know, what have you made outfits or cat ears or dresses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have like all of these coming out experiences, like this, this um, guy on TikTok who tried on a dress for a joke because he thought like oh it was gonna be funny haha you know like this other guy looks really hot in a dress and I don't but he tried it on and he had like this moment of awakening like oh my god I actually have beautiful mama mm. and then you know it it was just it's just nice because you don't get to see people in their everyday lives doing that like you didn't right mm. and now you do mm. because of this culture of oversharing that we've all been <laughs> propelled yes, exactly. into yeah yeah um, and I think that's quite quite lovely and quite intimate, right? If we can keep all of the hyper scrutinization out of it, <laughs> I think that could be a part part of it. I think you have to take the good and the bad. And yeah. I feel that there is no there's no way around it. I think there is no way we could we could move forward the next couple of years without social media. I think the social media is going to stay. There could be limits on it, but I think the cat's off the back for that and how it develops and how it changes this Gen Z when they become 30s and let's say we become 40s and 50s. I think it's all an experiment being played out, to be honest. Yeah, yeah there, there is, because the, the the studies and everything are still catching up. I think right now they are just figuring out that, okay, maybe Instagram for kids might not be so good. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah, so anyone could have told you that. But unfortunately, I think studies like this, it takes time. You need to look at it over a course of like maybe like five years just to get an accurate, uh, scientifically uh, backed and peer-reviewed thing. And by the time the things come out, I mean, the the, the person you're starting could be like 25 with, with a whole lot of issues. But yeah. unfortunately, that's, that's the world we live in. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's like that thing where, you know, um, what was it? Like a fetal alcohol syndrome and they didn't know about the effects. Wait, what? Yeah, what is that? Because um, there was a period of time where it was okay for pregnant women to drink. I mean, they didn't know, right? Like what, what the effects of that would be on the child until it was way too late. And then, you know, um, a whole a whole generation of children were born like that. And um, I think it's kind of like saying, oh, you know, just use your common sense. And then, you know, like, obviously, you know, common sense isn't common or like what we thought 
would have been good for the children, like spanking, for example. Mm. And now, you know, studies are showing that spanking isn't actually good for your child. Um, but I think that's my sort of like my my pain point with academia. It's not um, ever going to develop as fast as real life is, right? And um, I think that's where anecdotal evidence comes in or, you know, when you when you do sort of like um, informal studies on, mm. you know, like people's experiences or whatever. Um, but of, of course, the danger of that is like, then how do you verify if everybody is like having a mess hysteria about this thing yep. or, you know, like all the anti-vaxxers are in a <laughs> silo and they're all like, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Horse, the, the horse pill works <laughs> for the COVID. Yeah. So how do you um, filter out or how do you look for uh, helpful truths in this war of oversharing and uh, abundance of information where yeah. it seems like what you, what you think might be true, someone else might think it's false because there's so many narratives around oh, uh, sure. everything out there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was just having an argument about argument about this the other time um and i think you know when you talk about believing people's lived narratives right there is also that and i think um saying okay maybe this might not be true for you personally but it is true definitely for these other people and they might not experience the world exactly in the way you do but you can't deny that this is a thing that's mm. happening right so i think that keeping that sort of open mind um but critically is really important to me and of course i'm not i'm not the best person at doing it so sometimes i believe things and i often believe things that are extremely questionable and extremely whack like <laughs> out of this you know like um, able to give an example um i'm a witch la like what, what other example do you want me to give other that than, seems a lot more acceptable like, today then today yeah definitely yeah. but is it because like we have lost faith in our medical systems and our religions you know and i just think it's cool to have witches yeah that's all i also think it's cool to have witches but sometimes it's like this this witch does not know what she is doing man like she she does not know what the hell she's getting herself into you know and i i think that i there is that right you always want to find people who believe in the same outrageous things as you do but sometimes they're like oh you know they just come up to me and they're like I'm a Luciferian I'm like okay thank you very much I don't know what to do with that information so everyone's trying to find their kindred spirits right mm. like um but I think like the way I do it is I have a few people whose um, perspectives I cherish, right? And those people are kind of my litmus tests, tests, right? So I'll go up to them and be like, hey, you know, um, this is some bullshit to you. And I think like people do that to me too, right? They, they, they show me something and they're like, am I crazy? Or, you know, is this like, you know, whatever. I'm like, yes, bitch, you are crazy. But it also does look kind of suspicious, you know? And then we, we go from there. Um, that being said, though, I don't think... I mean, I, I'm sure you don't either. I don't think that there is any one objective truth. And I think truth can be warped, right? It is the whole, it is the whole, um, I guess, philosophy of magic to, you know, kind of say sometimes what is real can be changed through will, mm, you know? Intent. Like, yeah. Yep. Yes, exactly. Will and intent alone. So if you do that, then, um, 
I mean, I have another friend who says that every time you lie, you kind of warp reality a little bit. So it is very dangerous. And um, this, um, what is this? Uh, yes. So this poet um, that I really admire, C.A. Conrad, also says that if you talk about trauma when you are drunk, um, the body doesn't remember the trauma as the trauma was when it first happened. It kind of pegs it to when you next talk about it, right? So every time you rehash it, you are kind of... Um, reliving it. Yeah, reliving it and also kind of burying it deeper into you because that becomes a place that you can't really access when you are sober. And I think that's kind of dangerous because then you place the trauma in a, in a place where you find it difficult to exercise or you know like kind of heal from because um you don't really know um what you are doing in a conscious manner when you know like you you sort of like try and talk about your trauma but it's it becomes this thing that you're you're not really aware of in your conscious waking life and i think that's um that was kind of like kind of intense to me because you know how many people like are drunk and then they talk about all the shit that's ever happened to them in their life. Your partner's nodding. Okay. Oh no. Okay. So oh no. It got too deep. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think of that as another way in which to think about reality or the way in which we shape our own realities. And I mean, I don't know if I'm starting to sound like a mindfulness course, but like. I think if I give you five more minutes, you might actually. <laughs> I think, but isn't this something that one should at least know about or be cognizant of earlier as opposed to hopefully finding or chancing upon it in a literature text or someone were to have a conversation about it and you realize it because it sounds like it could be terribly insidious. Like you are repeating the... The, the same mistakes or you're repeating these traumas but you might not even know about it because I I think there could there, there's still a lot of mysteries to how the mind works and yeah. the body and if you believe it the soul and spirit and stuff like that yeah. there's still a lot of mysteries to it I mean what are you gonna say right like hey I want everybody in like in addition to their sex ed, have soul ed, right I'm gonna teach you how like not to fuck up your soul at an <laughs> early age <laughs> It's already so hard to get schools not to teach abstinence. <laughs> How are we going to convince them that, like, you know, taking care of your actual... It's not even about your soul, right? It's also about your mental health and, you know, like, mm -hmm. the way in which you sort of process things. But that's very lesbian of me to say because it's like a... The, the cliche is like, oh, you know, like a good old-fashioned lesbian process like you sit down and talk about your feelings with all your lesbian friends this is like a normal human thing to i do. don't know it's i mean like okay like, but the the way they they frame it is like oh let's process these feelings together and then we you know like emerge from it like you better i don't know i i thought everyone did that but it turns out not a lot of people <laughs> do that you know okay like it was it was kind of shocking to me because um i was also having having this conversation and i said like don't you and your friends have like really intense conversations and then you emerge from it like, whew, you know, like we've we've leveled up in our intimacy or whatever. But apparently, no, it's not a universal experience. But I love that. That's interesting. <laughs> so 
taking a diversion back to witchcraft, which I find to be pretty interesting. Um, you mentioned that you describe yourself as a witch. Could you please explain on that? Are you a witch? Mm, not in the conventional sense. Okay. Well, I don't think I'm a witch in the con. What is the conventional sense? Like we fly around on broomsticks, cackling naked. I wish it was that cool, but <laughs> I think I would imagine if you are a witch, or I guess the male carnival, we are warlock and whatever's in between. No. they'll be practicing stuff. They'll be what? You'll be practicing yes. it on a regular basis. Yes. You read up on it. I don't know if you attend Zoom classes for it. I don't know if that's. I was thinking about thing. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's at least what I uh, think about it, yeah. First of all, I don't want to, I, I want to clarify that a witch is um, not the female equivalent of a warlock. A warlock is more like a magical sugar baby and a witch is um, someone who kind of deals in like herbs and divination and like spell making. But a warlock has a magical patron um, that they are self-adopted by and get their magics from but freaking J.K. Rowling and her transphobia nonsense um, thinks that witch and wizard are like the two magical genders so (laughs) the magical genders let's just put that to rest shall we unfortunately my idea of the the magical is is awfully coloured by World of Warcraft and things of the like so so you you have to explain um what is your definition there? Yeah. Are you? Um, sorry, I say are you, not because I don't want to explain, but because it's gotten to a point where I feel like I'm actually getting more and more Catholic as I age, which is kind of embarrassing to admit because, you know, in the past, I was, because I was raised Catholic, right? So, um, but I, I had a falling out with... God? Yeah. Okay. Daddy, daddy God. Okay, okay. And, um, you know, because of the whole gay thing and whatever, but um, it... It's it's been interesting for me because then I stepped away from it and started looking at alternative systems of belief. And I think that um, my understanding of witchcraft or, you know, like any kind of occult uh, nonsense is you are in charge of your own destiny. You are in charge of your own myth-making or what have you, whatever gods you want to align yourself with, that has to be your agency and your choice, right? Um, whether or not you choose to practice like whatever like you know that binary of like good magic or bad magic that's also your choice right um that belief system is yours and yours alone to choose and of course there are some people who are like oh i was like witchcraft was passed down to me i don't really have a choice in it or um you know it's a gift that was that was you know whatever inherited yeah sure you know that there's that also right so you exist kind of in the margins outside of um organized religion and you know like legitimate religion yep. whatever right like if if i went to um the ICA and said yeah can you put down my religion as like which like, you know it, it would just be like mm. <laughs> okay <ma'am>. <laughs> <laughs> questionable stairs yeah, <laughs> yeah um but I think that that's why witchcraft and queerness have always gone hand in hand because they always kind of form this marginal existence and um, witchcraft especially sort of reclaims power from um, the organized religion and seeks to make it your own, right? The actor's um, own intent or will, what have you. And um, I found it quite un- empowering. And But I think there are certain ways of 
also marrying like for example folk religion right you marry your pagan or your heathen um, religions uh, of the land with whatever colonizing force came after that and then um, you I don't know I kind of see it as piggybacking as well you piggyback on someone else's god and you kind of like subsume it into your own traditions mm. and um, and that's I guess my my relationship with witchcraft has always been look the Catholic Church is stupid about some things let's not get our beliefs wholesale from it but at the same time I also recognize that um, belief is a very strong force, you know, and being able to change your beliefs or being able to control what you believe in or, you know, at least have a say in um, the doctrine that you feed yourself mm. is, I think, um, it's quite an act of love, actually, right? To be able to reclaim your stories and your myths and your... Um, I guess, like, warning rules. <laughs> I think um, that's empowerment right there. Like, you... I think the idea of reclaiming or even owning, yeah, I think that's that's a really strong thing to not identify with, but internally know, like, these are... This is my story, ultimately, because everything is contributing to this story that you are writing. At the end of the day, whatever... People, people reading a story are the, the ones who have interacted with you or experienced you to a certain degree and they will pass on the story and so on and so forth. Yeah, but it's also incredibly hubristic of us to say, you know what, like, I'm in complete control of my story, you know, like... We are not in complete control. <laughs> which we, we, we fool ourselves into thinking we're in complete yeah. control. So I think that that is the balance, right? Are you going to sort of petition the gods to be like, oh, please, you know, like the landlord is being difficult. Are you just going to poison the cows yourself? I think that is the difference for I think if the burns I'm offering for them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what they like. <laughs> <laughs> what, the landlords? <laughs> <laughs> no, God. <laughs> so um, I'm curious to know, are there any aspects of witchcraft that you disagree with then? Oh man. Um I mean if you know me you'd know that I don't like telling people what to do and um I don't I think the only thing that I don't agree like that I would never do um is a love potion like you know some kind of like love spell to make someone fall in love with you like if it's a, just a spell for attraction or whatever that's fine that's whatever but if you you particularly want to make someone else do something against their will mm. and especially love right because it's i mean oh my god not to come across as like a fucking romantic but can you imagine like the idea of love as it is is going to be completely like perverted and um destroyed by the mere idea that you can control something like that right it would just be a mere facsimile it shatters the illusion of it yeah, I mean, not even, like, do you believe in love? <laughs> um, oh, Kevin's shaking his head. He doesn't believe in love. I do not, actually. I think okay. love is... is it's, it's 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 a shorthand for a lot of different things. Yeah. And I also do believe that people attribute uh, certain experiences as love, but because we each have a different definition of it. And by that, as we talked about, there is no common reality. So by that, it means that this thing is, it's always in front of us, but I don't think we'll ever reach it. We can attribute different things or different feelings, but those are more neurological or things that 
perhaps from your past, perhaps people told you about it. So there are all the different things that, that factor into this puzzle piece, but there yeah. is no one true There's love. No. <laughs> yeah. One true love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One true pairing. Uh, yeah, I I I don't know if I agree with you. I would say that yes, I don't think that love is a a universal experience for everybody in the way that we experience it. Um, but I think that love, as we kind of refer to it, is sort of like this ineffable force that um, drives a lot of human motivation and um, I don't know what, like desire or, you know, like just your basic will to live. Mm. And I think that that in itself has power and I think it's it's kind of sacred in a way, but I don't mean like romantic love, you know, like it's, um, I mean, I think romantic love is a lie that's been sold to women to like convince them to get married to their um, patriarchal whatever in their lives, right? But love as in something that puts the life back into whatever you're doing right if you do it for love for example if you if you create things out of love for whatever like a concept or a god or whatever i think that that's kind of um impossible to replicate mm. and and special in a way and so i think you know trying to say oh you know i'm gonna make this person fall in love with me it's like mm, it's all well and good <laughs> until you actually do it and so i don't think i disagree with it like on a moral standpoint i just don't think if you think that you if you want to say you're doing it i don't think you know what you're talking about so mm. it's like a very mm, are you sure <laughs> it is a bit iffy to, to a certain degree if you think about it yeah it's kind of like this i don't know it's like an amateur red flag like oh oh we're gonna oh is that what we're doing today <laughs> <laughs> so what about the the greater concepts of good and evil then Wow. Do you believe in those macro ideas then? Um since since it seems like the conversation is delving to this yeah, trajectory, so let's so. hit straight it, there. It all, it all gets very philosophical at yeah. some point. I think that um Oh, I don't wanna say that I have an entirely pragmatic um view towards good or evil, but I think that um when we talk about good, right? I think we cannot be good. I think we can only do good. Like if you say someone is a good person, I don't think that means anything. It's like saying someone is nice. Like yep. <laughs> what the fuck does that mean, right? Like yep. at least la, it's just like they have no other personality besides that. And I think good very often comes with the ideas of being obedient, of being respectable, or what have you, and virtue, right? Which I find doesn't, um, it's like being polite, right? You, everyone does it to some degree, right? I mean, if you've met like an extremely rude person for like in all aspects of their life, I mean, like I kind of find that quite admirable but also they're tiring to be around mm. so it's a social lubricant yep. in you know in the way that good is also kind of like a social lubricant everyone's like okay don't beat the baby on the bus's head because that's not very nice yeah. <laughs> um but when you get down to it right like what is morally right or wrong i think that um <sighs> The idea of good and, and moral greyness and evil has been used by a lot of very smart people to justify a lot of 
heinous things that they have done, yep. right? In the in the name of the greater good. I mean, just yep. look at our fucking government. But you know, like it's not it's not something that I put a lot of stock in because I am a person who believes that if you want to reframe that, you can, right? And only you will know whether or not you genuinely believe in this idea or you're just um using it as a tool to, you know, like ingratiate yourself with whatever the hell you want. But I mean, is there pure good? Is there pure evil in this world? I feel like these moments are rare and um kind of boring, to be honest. <laughs> like, you know, if you spend your life in the pursuit of goodness, <laughs> like eh. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I think I, I think narratively, um, there could be a reason why when we dial that to the extreme, we enjoy watching it narratively because it's 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 a movie, it's a production, it's only for like two hours, and we enjoy seeing what that could be to the extreme where there is like a single focus. But then when we when the movie ends, then it's up to us how to interpret that that particular piece of media. I don't. Yeah, I think. Which is why I find superhero movies so unbearable, you okay. know? Like, they're just, oh my god, I'm a good guy, but now I'm not really a good guy, and now I'm bad guy. I was just like, shut the fuck up, you know? Like, who cares? Give me, give me the, you know, just the ambiguous kind of, you know, um, like ambiguous even to yourself, right? You don't, you don't even know if you're doing the right thing, which is, I think, why, um, I was reading this interview about, um, Studio Ghibli's Princess Mononoke and it was really difficult for the American translators when they translated it into English because they were like I don't get it is the, is the person the bad guy or the good guy and, and then you know um, the studio was like um, no they are just guys yep, yep, yep. <laughs> right? I've always felt that there was a discrepancy between uh, not just like a translation thing but how I guess Western media in general how they portray these themes compared to how Eastern media portrays it because yeah. in Eastern media it is a lot more fluid. Mm. It's a lot more fluid in a sense where they are just people. It's it's a very it's 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 very human stories down to the animation. Brilliant, but I guess I guess in Western media there always has to be a bad guy, and you you let, let's say the bad guy always likes to monologue the plans, and the bad guy always has to be stopped. Yeah, I've, I don't believe I've seen a show or a piece of media where the bad guy wins and it ends on that. There is always like a climactic, like it ends yeah. and then the bad guy loses or the bad guy changes or yeah. the, the bad guy changes to being a good guy or like yeah. somewhere in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Some kind of redemption arc, basically. Um, that's really annoying, right? It's like you cannot win unless you have earned it. I think it's unfortunate that um, uh, once you realize these themes are at play and I guess even being part of... Um, even recognizing how these productions are made, I mean, it is for mass. It is not for uh, people to to pick apart and to think about these themes. Like you watch a movie, you think about it for like five years. I don't think it's for that. So I think I think it's for people to to consume and to just take their mind off things for like two hours or like even eight hours for a show. So I guess from that point of view, it, 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 it kind of makes sense. So it kind of blows my mind actually that people. Sorry, that people want to escape into media. Like, I'm always looking to be extremely traumatized and disturbed by media. You're always looking to be extreme, extremely traumatized. Yeah. Not, Why is that? I mean, not traumatized, but 
disturbed definitely, right? Because um, I think it's valuable when a piece of media is able to bring my understanding to a place that I haven't sort of like considered before, right? And I think because um, I don't know if it's because I grew up on 4chan, which is like has been described variously as the asshole of the internet or um, because, you know, I have a very like shitty levels of dopamine in my brain or whatever. But I think um, for me, a feel good movie is never going to be as valuable to me as a very extremely as a disturbing <laughs> or weird or, you know, like genuinely bizarre movie right and i think a lot of that has to do with um a love of predictability i mean sorry unpredictability mm. right and um i just want to see something that i haven't seen before right i don't know if you feel those, the same way about escapism it depends um at what point am i viewing those media and mm. it really depends if i have set the time out to just enjoy it. Yeah. But I guess to that point, there's also one of the best things about, I guess, let, let's say YouTube as a service, it allows um, people with different perspectives to upload their analysis or even their point of views about certain types of media that might, it would definitely not be possible uh, two decades ago. So you yeah. get to hear, uh, what I like to do is that, let's say I watch um, the X-Men, for example, let's mm. say the X-Men. Mm run-of-the-mill comic book movie and I can go onto YouTube and I can search like five to ten different creators and then each get their different take and how they they relate to it, their history and I think I get a very uh, good or even accurate sense as to A, what the creator is doing and what their intentions are at that point in time when they create it, B, the movie and C, uh, the, the different takes on it and what it means for them really. So I think it goes beyond just, let's say, that two hours in a cinema. It definitely goes beyond that because it is laborious. Everything that we see uh, on maybe even TikTok, Instagram, everything is labor. Yeah. Everything is, like, it's, it's just that we just see a finished product. Yeah. So to your point about uh, interesting media, um, have, have you watched anything recently that surprised you? Oh no. Have um, you watched or consumed anything? <laughs> yeah, I, I watched The Medium actually and it was... Do you watch horror movies? No. Okay, so The Medium is um by the director of Shutter, I think, and it was produced the by... The Thailand the, one? Yes, the Taiwan. The amazing, famous, like... The, the, the last time. scene, yeah, yeah that was that okay. one. Right. So if you're a, you're a horror movie fan, you'll you'll know, of course. Everybody and, knows that scene. Yeah. yeah. And produced by um the the producer of the Wailing, I think. So very, you know, like it, it's cut its teeth on some like great horror canon, right? Um, but it was kind of the first movie that had me um kind of shaking in my seat because usually I'm not the kind of movie uh moviegoer that gets scared by horror movies oh, like, shaking in horror I thought excitement I mean also excitement okay, there, are, okay. there are a lot of kinks that are you know like um, covered in that movie if, okay. if you watch it you'll know what I mean but um, I think because the horror like the medium kind of played on the tropes of horror movies but didn't do it in a way that was sort of tired or you know like overdone it it felt real, you know, and I mean, real. to add, yeah, to add to that, it was also 
a mockumentary. So it, you know, kind of like the first five minutes I turned to my partner, I was like, you didn't tell me this was a documentary. And she was like, yeah, yeah, it's a documentary. Didn't you read the, the description? The I'm first like, five minutes. No, bitch. I didn't read the fucking description. <laughs> So I think, yeah, I, I was I was very convinced that obviously when all the other stuff starts, then I was just like, okay, fine. This is way too convenient to be like any kind of um, documentary. It's obviously fake. But, you know, like up up to a certain point, like maybe uh, half an hour before the movie ended, she was like, this, this is fake, right? This is fake, right? This, this is fake, right? <laughs> and it was like, um, I think it was surprising because... Um, I've come to expect a certain level of okay, we don't go there when when it comes to horror movies. Like for example, um, you very rarely see um, people taking a shit on each other in like a conventional horror movie. When like you go to watch it in the cinemas, you know that's kind of like indie movie territory, right? Um, and I'm I'm not saying that that happened in the movie, but <laughs> like it's um, the horror was a certain amount of dread. And I guess um, it just felt like these people knew and had done their research on mm. um, real happenings that, you know, like real, real hauntings or whatever, but not in the way that Hollywood does it, which is like, oh, this is based on a real story. And then it doesn't <laughs> look like a real story at all. Yep. You know, I'm in James Wan. So I, I don't want to say except that it, it kind of, I was expecting it to be good, but not this good, you know? And um, I think it accessed a lot of, like, my personal trauma that I found a very, sort of, like, I, f- I felt kind of violated because I was like, how do you know this about me? Like, how do you know that this would trigger me? So, you know, it. Um, I think that, that when you when you dare to make a piece of media that's specific, it kind of um, creates the sense of like recognition, right? And like maybe horrible recognition, but also very enjoyable. Like, mm. oh, I feel seen, you know, by this piece of media. And I think that that's the power in sort of creating something that is not pandering to a general audience. Um, which is also kind of why I tried to do with my book, right? Like I, I thought that no one would like it because I wrote it so specifically to my own experience. Um, and but you know, turns out many people are also huge lesbian perverts, so that's very nice. So you found your crowd. Yeah, I found my crowd. In that's a brilliant segue to your book. So oh, let's no. talk about it. Or are you sick of talking about it? I. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say I am because, like, that sounds ungrateful. No, it's just, <laughs> I feel like I don't know if I have anything interesting to say about it that's ha- that hasn't been said yet. Mm. But but what do you want to know about the book? Okay. For the listeners, so just give me a, a, a description of the book and what it's about and the, the process of writing it. Why, why write something like this? I read snippets of it and I found it to be the most interesting. Um, I have no experience with poetry. It is, to me, like the, the opposing creative uh, medium mm-hmm. c- coming from the visual arts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think poetry, uh, spoken word, and I think even performances, that is completely foreign to me. Right. Yeah. That's very curious because then what about people who are both visual artists and poets, right? 
I haven't come across much. I haven't seen a lot of examples, right, but yeah. Right. Yeah, maybe maybe usually they're better at one than the other. I don't know. Yeah, Would but you? I'm sure there are, there are a lot of uh, gradations, but it's just not as common. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, okay, so the book is called Gaze Back and it is, um, what do I call it? A trans-genre lesbian grimoire that you never knew you needed. It is. It talks about um, feminism and especially like the queer body using witchcraft as a tool to kind of reclaim power from the patriarchy and religion and, you know, um, basically body policing and respectability politics, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and, and so it, it it was my first book of poetry. I don't know if it will be my last. <laughs> what was your not. headspace like when you wrote it or when you conceived of the idea of writing it? I was kind of angry because sure. um, I was in a space where... A, I was discontent at the kind of um, art that I was consuming in the art scene. I felt like it wasn't it wasn't pushing the kind of um, like boundary lines that I wanted to see pushed, and I felt like no one was being explicit enough. No one was talking about the kind of um, I guess. Uh, conversations that they would have with their friends or whatever this is like oh it's a widely acknowledged problem or whatever but it isn't acknowledged in your art right so um to be able to take those concepts and translate them and of course i myself as a young ish woman um you know with a history of like oh you know being sexually assaulted on trains or um whatever right it it kind of stemmed from feeling unsafe as well and and that anger kind of produced a space in which I wanted to bite back, right? I wanted to hit back at like all of these things that have caused me violence, that have caused me pain. And um, I think that Gigs Back was written from a very sort of like, I wrote it to be um, a weapon you know, in a in a very real sense, like a spell is a weapon or a like a like a curse is a weapon. Right. But it was also an act of solidarity. It was also an act of love to, you know, all the unloved bodies that I had seen and, and was seeing at that time. So when I wrote it, um, there was this period. So at my launch, right, I get, I asked my friend um, Marla to you know to come and perform. And Marla's a, a singer as well as an artist, and um, so I told her I give her a copy of the book, and I said, "Oh, I wrote this for you," and I you know I meant it. Like I wrote this for all of the marginalized, all of the overpoliced, queer and trans bodies. Um, and then like a couple of, I think maybe six months later, she called me and then she was kind of in a bad headspace and she said, oh, you know, why did you write this for me? And I was like, I can't tell you why, but, um, I was kind of shocked that she remembered that, you know, about the book and, and she was in a, in a, in a bad headspace and she was flipping through the book and reading through it like a Bible. And then I was like, oh, I... I positioned it like a Bible, right? Because like a grimoire. But 
um, like a spell book, which is like sort of like your witch's Bible. Um, but I didn't intend for it to come true in like such a literal fashion. So I think that was kind of, um, it was quite powerful for me, like shocking, but also um, strangely like gratifying. Like if I can't be there for you, at least my book mm. is there with you. So I think that's the space that I wanted it to occupy in the first place. I'm like, Marilyn, you fucking asked for this, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> were you writing um, it from your perspective or were you writing it from a fictional character's point of view that it belongs to this fictional character or something like that? I feel like um, it's it deals with concepts. I'm not a very sort of like, I don't speak from f- uh, like first person very well. I don't, I don't like confessional poetry or whatever i like to um draw up like a premise but not a character right so sort of like a con like really concept like that's how some of my poems begin like concept this is the concept now we're gonna like explore it so um i think for me that the ambiguous space of not having to come up with a narrative to tell um, to talk about a theme is very important to poetry and i think that's why poetry lends itself so well to um, revolution and ideas, right? Because um, Audre Lorde says that, you know, like poetry holds in it the the possibility that to imagine that which we have no words yet to imagine. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's really gorgeous. It's in an essay called um, Poetry is Not a Luxury. And it cannot be a luxury, especially for uh, marginalized people who often don't have the luxury of imagining their lives already as it is surviving in this in this system or in this world so i'm curious to know the book is a success has won awards award, la. Won award. award. <laughs> regardless award okay won award <laughs> okay um i'm curious to know if you have been approached by people that you do not know you haven't spoken to before but they've read your book but they have an impression about you based on the book and they've talked to you about it has, has, has that ever been the case before yeah definitely um Wow, it was so weird because I got, I'm not going to say who, but like I got um, messaged by this guy. I'm sure he's a very nice man, but I don't know him, you see. And um, I think the the feeling that I got from his like sliding into my DMs was, hey, you're a very sexual person and I'm looking for a very sexual person to like make a new, um, a new piece of art. And, you know, I've been like... Uh, what's the word censored before but you know like i'm looking for someone as crazy as me to do like my new project and whatever uh, which is fine and all but it's also like i think that a lot of people assume hypersexuality which is true but a lot of men assume hypersexuality and then like that's when my penis is like you know i'm not i'm not just in this kind of sexual like advance things mm-hmm. um and then you know you have the usual like people who at um at writer events or anything then they just come up to you and they, they say shit like oh my child is also kind of disturbed and she loves things like um i don't know what like oh horror movies and spiders and, I'm, and they were like how do you how what advice would you have for that and i'm like when the parents came up to yeah, you the, the mom came up to me and she said oh her, her her daughter loves dark things just like you and i was like thanks auntie. <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell her except um, 
keep going, girl. I don't believe you could have anticipated this when I, you have written it. I mean, how do you like? Are Are you trying to tell ask me to tell your kid to be less, just more disturbed? What, what is it? You know, like oh, maybe I should have given her like a book recommendation, <laughs> like yeah. So for the sake Story of clarity, of what is your book recommendation? Um. Doesn't it depend on who the person is? Um, I don't really have like a go-to book recommendation that every I think everyone should read. I mean, obviously, I think everyone should read C.A. Conrad. Um, I think Kathy Acker is really um great. Blood and Guts in High School. Uh, and especially if you're talking about local authors, um, Ilangovan has always been my baby. Actually, no lah. He's not always been my baby. I, I remember Ilankwad's um, a playwright and he is famous for plays like Smegma and Talak, which means uh, divorce. And, you know, he he speaks to sort of like the underbelly of society that um, we rarely talk about. So also very uh, graphic, very sexual, um, very sort of like debased and, and vulgar sometimes. And I remember picking up his book um, when I was in secondary school. And I was like, what's this shit? It's all in Singlish. Then I went back to it, like, um, I think five years later, I was like, oh my god, this guy's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> what changed within the time? I think I just, like, expanded my ideas of what good writing is. You know, when you're a kid, I mean, I, I don't know if this is the the case for you, but when we're, ch- when we're students, we, you know, get told that, oh, like, standard English is the only English that you should aspire to. I mean, obviously, because they need to get us to pass our levels, right? So, you get into this um, habit. I mean, I still do it sometimes because I'm a snob, but, you know, you get into this whole, like, oh, well, he can't even speak proper English, so obviously the writing must be shit, or maybe his ideas are not great because haha you know like that that sort of prescriptivism is conflated with um he doesn't have good ideas mm. but you know um the the concept of using singlish as a register to communicate things was like not told to and like not ex- expressed or you know i had not experienced that before so when i went back to it and then you know I, I read it in full and it was talking about i think the one that stuck with me the most was um when i think this Malay um, trans woman was talking about like, you know, his her penis or whatever. And I think she was on the MRT or something and then she was carrying it. Um, or I might be mistaking that for like an Alfian side one. But anyway, so a lot of a lot of queer writing as well, I think, in in his work. And um I remember thinking like you don't really see any of this, you know, in like local literature. Or you, you see very little of it. I mean, of course, Alfian Saad was also a huge um, influence because he, along with uh, Cyril Wong and Ng Yisheng, were kind of the first queer writers that I ever came across. And Alfian especially because, you know, he would talk about um, the gay, like, sexual experience in his plays or, you know, um, whatever. And there would be this moment, like, I wish that, you know, lesbians would talk about the lesbian sexual experience in place in the same honest and frankly um, kind of disturbing to you know uh, an audience that hasn't experienced it before uh, way and I think that that's also how I sort of envision my book like you know being able to speak about the body in a way that was freeing to me 
right? Rather than run circles around it and euphemism. So this might be a bit of a strange question, but do you agree with the success of the book? Do I agree with it? Like, is it after having written it? Is mm-hmm. it something that you are proud of? Like, is it something that you wish could have done better? Is it something that you do desperately want to rewrite but have to move on? So I'm just curious to know. Um, like, is, is that something you think about? I think. Um, I think I poured everything I had into it at the time. I don't think that because I think um, I am. I'm just such a snob about writing. So I. W- I would be like, oh, I'm not going to make an anthology of like all of the poetry that I've written so far. I'm going to write an entirely new book, you know? So there's this um, sort of like from conception to finish, it was a full thing. It was a full manuscript. It wasn't like a, like greatest hits of Marilyn Dan shit, mm. you know? So, I mean, no, no shade to anyone who does that and people do do it often and well, but I think that for me, this baby sort of like was, I conceived this baby and like delivered it all in one go. So I think that I can't change it even if I wanted to, right? It was like, it was genuinely sort of like receiving or, or incubating a project and undergoing it. Um, I'm just surprised, you know, like at the, that people, liking it so much because I was fully prepared for like maybe two people to like it. <laughs> you, your mom and your dad? No, not even my mom and my dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh my God. They were so like, why did you write this? Okay. Yeah. They, they were not happy being Catholics and straight people. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, if, if anything, um, it's only made me feel less alone, you know, like, oh, it's not who is going to stop you. It's like, you know, who is going to start you because very often people are, you know, I, I think we all have this, these moments of like, well, I can't do that. It's obviously like too outrageous or too like out there, you know, no one will like it. Mm. It's like, just, just do it. You know, it's do the weird thing. It's not ever going to be as weird as you think it is because bitch, you know, that's special, mm. you know, that's a, that's a quotable right there. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> So in running with the baby metaphor, so it has been a couple of years since the book has been published and you've been interviewed ad nauseum about it. So I'm just curious to know, how's the baby doing right now? What, what image do you have? Um, We just reprinted, so that's nice. Okay. The baby's going to school. <laughs> okay. I, I finally got to take out my misspelling of gelat because... <laughs> I'm very upset about it because like when it was first published, um, I think Joshua Ip shared uh, like a screen, uh, like a like a photo of the page um, where I was talking about Nasi Kankang, which is, you know, like a Malay folk practice where you sort of bewitch a man with your vaginal fluids. Anyway, so um, there's this word that I use in the poem called Jalak and it's um, it means like you're you're sick of something. You, you know, you're um, not, you're, You've had too much of something, basically. Mm. And I spelled it wrongly. Didn't you say you were a snob? Yeah, I am. You said it twice on the podcast. Yes, I am a snob, but I'm also an idiot. (laughs) 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 And I'm not... Yeah, okay, like, I I should have, in hindsight, gone to, like, one of my Malay friends or, like, had a Malay sensitivity reader and said, hey, you know, is this thing spelled... Because... So many eyes looked at it. Like so many pairs of eyes, it went through so many people and nobody said anything. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, 
I guess that's that's fine then, you know. Um that then again, right? I it's maybe it's yeah, it's, it's just nobody's fault but mine, but I finally got it changed and I'm just like, yes. And also there's like a, a grammar error that nobody ever pointed out, but I know where it is. And like if you know where it is, like good on you too. <laughs> <laughs> you get a free book. Yeah. <laughs> you get a free signed copy. <laughs> Yeah, and um, I think that was quite satisfying for me. And I think people are interested in it, even like overseas. So that's been nice. You know, people have said, oh, you know, we're going to bring your book um, to our friends or we're going to send it to, you know, whoever, blah, blah, blah. So I think like I was kind of surprised because it's a very Singaporean book, right? It's like very located in Singaporeanness. And, um, but maybe I have underestimated the appeal so that's quite sweet is is the success of the book daunting daunting in a sense when you conceive of let's say a professional career in writing it's going to be like perhaps the next 10 20 even 30 40 years yeah like the success of the first book is so successful is mm-hmm. it daunting like if you want to write like perhaps the next book or something else like oh you, God, you're always yes. reminded of this runaway success and you you feel that you might not be able to live up to it is yeah. it yeah do you feel that oh definitely and coupled with the fact that i haven't been able to write for the past like three or four years right so um in any like big capacity also because i started working so um capitalism is bad for art and it's just been a bit difficult to say okay you know maybe i can do a second project that is maybe not as hard-hitting and epic like will you still love me if i'm not the angry rebel of like you know when i was 23 Mm. um my girlfriend's shaking her head she will not so she's still the angry rebel when she was at 23 (laughs) no no love for mellow marilyn no i mean I, th- I think that, yes, there is that pressure, right, to, like, keep producing good work. Yep. Um, but it's also a standard that I hold very dearly to myself. So I think a lot of... Thanks for asking that, because, like, a lot of my struggling with making new things has also, I think, been a response to that. Like, me trying to get out of my own head and say, you know what, just fucking shit out the goddamn thing already. Like, you think people care. You think, you know, like, who gives a shit? Just write it and then we'll talk about it. And then if you, you know, you're not happy with it, then we can, like, write the next thing. You know, people write more than one book in their lives. It's okay. Some of them are flops. Some of them are not. And then, you know, like, the 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 perfectionist like overachieving a plus student in me is like no we are gonna get distinction for every project what distinction who's grading you exactly who's grading you <laughs> no one's grading you i'm grading me <laughs> so 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 in a sense i i like the duality it there it's like your 23 year old self is talking to your age now um i call it um to my therapist i call it toxic maryland and rational maryland <laughs> Then like she'll be like, okay, so what do you think we should do with Toxic Marilyn? I'm like, we should tie her up and throw her into a closet and set her on fire. And she's like, that's not very healthy. <laughs> you don't know that she might be killed like that. <laughs> she might survive. <laughs> I'm too toxic. Do you think that is integral? Do you think that's an integral part of the creative process? Mm, I think some people have a harder time with it than others do i kind of wish that i was like one of those prolific authors that could just write and then just give it 
and just put it out into the world and they're like oh you know i have a new book like every every year or something um but i i suspect that that is also a part of me saying like i want to point to all these things and say hey look i'm a productive human being i'm a valued member of society please love me which is kind of antithetical you know to the whole like making art because you feel like it needs to be made it needs to be said um i don't hear people talking about it a lot i think also because um it's hard to admit that you kind of feel that way like um I don't know why like, I feel like writers are sometimes a little bit precious about their craft like um, they're afraid to say oh you know maybe I'm not that great this time around or you know like oh I, I'm, I'm in my flop era right <laughs> so I think I haven't really been able to hear that like I've always heard you know even in, in residencies or you know when you're talking to, to other authors they're always just like yeah I'm working on this new thing blah 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 but they don't tell me like I'm insecure about it because I don't think anybody will love it like no one's gonna tell you that yep. you know no one's gonna say I think it's kind of a shitty idea but I'm in love with it <laughs> I'm just curious to know um, your idea of productivity like at, at this point in time what does it mean to you because I've been yeah. struggling with that, you know, because um, I like doing a lot of things. <laughs> like, I like, um, I also do art and, you know, like um, a lot of things for very little to show for it, I think. Um, a lot of like, okay, so when you do an event, right, or when you do a workshop or when you have an exhibition or whatever, all these things are things that you can ostensibly Put on your portfolio or on your CV or whatever you or you do an interview like um, on a podcast or whatever. But I think that mm, for a long time this was the way I justified productivity to myself. Like um, I also recently unpacked this with my therapist, and I was like, you know, I don't think that I can justify spending free time unless I'm doing something that results in a tangible result you know so I don't know if you have that but like I can't like when I have fun it's not really having fun it's kind of like oh I'm just gonna sort of like um, paint and then maybe I can turn it into a print and then maybe I can make it into oh, a sticker so it has to be a product <sighs> at the end of the day yeah, that is exhausting it's really fucking exhausting and I I Sometimes it does happen that way and, and sometimes it's just in the back of my mind like, oh, we have to make this good because then it could have a life beyond the sketchbook yep. or beyond the whatever, right? Um, and in that same vein, I think that's why I don't write for fun anymore. It's always like someone commissions me to write something and I'm just like, oh, well, yeah, I guess I could write something for you. So you can lines. write. It's like you need someone to <laughs> So I you can write. <laughs> I have written many, many things things yeah. i just haven't written anything that i think is like a good thing you know something to rival the you know the work of geese back which is kind of shitty like can you imagine you have a child then you're like oh this child is ugly it's not as beautiful as his older brother so we're not gonna give it love you just stay locked up in the basement till I, think, you- I think 
taking away the locking out of the basement, I think that's what parents actually do. I'm no! not surprised if that's the reality. <laughs> that sounds like a very uh parent thing to to think about even to subconsciously do. That is so <laughs> the, the favoritism and everything. Wow. You don't hide your child away. As it take away the, the hiding in the basement, oh, okay. but the unconscious favoritism because perhaps one child might be excelling better and stuff like that. I think it I think it's a very human thing to do <laughs> yeah but can you imagine like they're like oh yeah don't don't look at this child look at this one like at, at family events or I'm, whatever I'm sure you've been to family events that that happens <laughs> oh, I don't know Lam. maybe I'm just so like out of it at family events I'm just too self-absorbed but I'm sure it's, it's happened to you so that's a point of trauma for you maybe <laughs> That's where I'm not going to pay for uh, therapy <laughs> with you because I'm a single kid. <laughs> no family oh, events. Oh, yeah. that's nice. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Lucky you. Interesting. Um, so this was the tangent. Mm. I want to go back to what was my original question. All so, right, sexy. Which is, what is poetry to you? Wow. <laughs> because um, from doing this podcast and talking to people of yeah. I guess different occupations professions even those within the same uh, space as me they have different definitions of what uh, their particular profession and what their craft means to them at that particular point in time so I just want to know like what is poetry to you right now and has it changed along the way mm. as in poetry as a genre it's however you choose to interpret uh, the question I think, I mean, I think I've said this before, but poetry to me is a feeling first and also um, sort of like a thing that you experience, right? So when you read a really good poem, sometimes you can't really put your finger on why it's good or it like why it stabs you in the gut, which is the feeling that I'm looking for when um, I'm reading poetry because I, I read poetry for Singapore Unbound and sometimes, you know, I have to reject people like my friends and my housemates. But um, the reason why some poems get accepted and some poems don't is because I have the sense, like I want to feel stripped apart and and um, seen and maybe a little bit violated or recognized or, you know, like having that connection um exists in the poem as an artifact and as a reader sort of experiencing the poem for the first time or for the hundredth time or whatever um i think it is like good poetry right if you're, you're talking about poetry in in the pure and distilled form like being able to reach that poetry feeling is a way to access a part of you and a feeling that you couldn't articulate before. Whether or not that feeling is like in disgust or like in a, um, nausea or, mm. or love or whatever. Um, I think that that is the value of poetry to me, right? To be able to say what is inarticulable. Is it always something fleeting? I don't think so. I think sometimes it sticks with you. Like, um, there's a really famous poem by Mary Oliver called Good Bones and it resonates with a lot of people and a lot of poems resonate with a lot of people, right? <laughs> I mean, for better or worse. <laughs> but, it's not, but um, it's not, it's not something, like you can say like, oh my God, this poem is so relatable. It's like everybody experiences it, but it is when you read the poem and you feel like you are being talked to like personally by the poem. I think that is, 
the beauty of it, you know? Like, it's not generic. It's not like, oh, yeah, today my butt crack was itchy. And then everyone's like, <laughs> yeah, damn, my butt crack was itchy too, you know? Like, sure, but like in a way that makes it feel new every time. I think that is like the hard part, right? Anyone can write a poem, fine, whatever. But being able to make that feeling arise in your audience. So what is what in your opinion is the 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 key ingredient to to transform uh, a mediocre ever a neutral piece of poem into a magnificent one? What is that a uh, bridge? Hmm. Is I it think- experience? Is it a f- little uh, feeling? What is it? I think you can you definitely can get better and you do get better with um practice right so like practicing writing something it's like the the potter thing like you make a hundred pots they're all shitty but at the end of it you're a better potter oh right? you waste a lot of clay I mean you waste a lot of clay <laughs> la, but clay can recycle one it's fine like words can recycle one it's fine you know I think I mean that's also the beauty of like writing right it's just like whatever words word is cheap talk is cheap um but I think that that feeling, right, that sensitivity to how to write like a blade is, um, some people have it, like, it's, it's very easy for them. What do you them. mean, write like a blade? It, like, you know, when I said stabbed in the gut, that's how, that's what I mean, right? Like, your, your poem is an entryway or sort of like, uh, like something so sharp and so, um, so potent that it just hits you in a, in a place that you were just like, oh shit, you hit me in my vulnerable spot and now I am laid out crying on the altar. <laughs> like, ah, yay, true love. Um, but, you know, like being able to get to that requires vulnerability on your own part and a willingness to go back and sort of like sharpen the poem and like, you know, kind of like revise it until it reaches that state of both shimmering rawness and also something that's so finely crafted that you know like it's both right like you want it to feel like a first kiss but actually this kiss has been orchestrated and like built upon and you know it's kind of creepy <laughs> it is right yeah why do you think poems are creepy they are <laughs> oh, socially awkward creeps um so you know that that being able to, it's like any craft, right? Like, how do you know if something looks good? Like, you cannot say, oh, because this color looks good, or like, well, this whatever looks good. You can point to certain aspects of, of, a, of a print or a picture or a painting, but you can't say for sure, like, oh, you know, if you just replicate this and you put this and this and this together, like, you'll make another one that's different, but kind of like creating exactly the same feeling, right? Mm. So that is, I think, for me the the poem like the sensibility that requires that deftness and sensitivity to um connection so i find when i read um some of your poems and poetry um it conjures up really vivid images Mm. so are those uh are you cognizant of those images when you are weaving together the poem or what what comes first like is it the image or the the, the concept or is it you just start typing and you like certain things and you piece them together? Sometimes um, it takes a while. So I think what you're asking is the process, right? Like do you do you decide on the images first? And, and I think it's both. So like 
in the in the beginning I would just write whatever then I would try and describe something you know in a way that was new and yet accurate because like obviously that's the goal of poetry but um I think when uh when I when I under went to this project my mentor Devere Victor also introduced certain ways of creating that were different right like uh, for example C.A. Conrad the poet also does this thing where they make up rituals to sort of like break through your inner sensor and um, you know like you you write um, after a ritual and you know maybe you're sitting in the bathtub or you're chewing on a piece of fruit and then you listen to the fruit and then you like um, write down what the fruit says to you with your eyes closed and that kind of um, that kind of interruption in your cognitive process sort of um, gives you new material and new new words to play with I think um, but mostly when I write a poem it is about I think a good like when I write a poem that I'm satisfied with, it's about latching onto a feeling and then sort of like feeling my way around the feeling, you know, with with these phrases that are sometimes surprising and sometimes very vivid. Um, but it's like making the abstract tangible. But I've also been called incomprehensible, so maybe don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> By more than one person. <laughs> could you describe, okay, could you paint me a picture or even describe what you mean by trying to capture the intangible? Mm, let's say you were extremely fucked up about something that someone did to you, right? And um, But you don't want to talk about it in a way like, oh, today this man at the bus stop took a shit on my lap, right? But you want to you want to sort of like grab hold of that feeling of of guilt or disgust or whatever so i think that is the abstract that i sort of like try and latch onto and then you know i you you sort of bring that thread over to the writing which um tends to become like oh you know um whatever then like the sort of like associations or or the the feeling of like whatever chocolate drudgery in the rain or whatever you know like it it's it's sort of like at at some points it seems like a game like word association and at others it seems like i want to create something that's not on the nose it's like it's elevated right you know you know when you have you seen those horrible um food videos where they try and like sort of do um like chemical um recreations of food like they will they'll blender a, a steak and they'll blend a steak into like a, a foam right and then you like sort of like inhale the foam and that's you, you have know. to send me these videos yeah. after the, the cat boy thing yeah i've very- never seen those before yeah. <laughs> we obviously live on very different corners of we, the we do. <laughs> <laughs> evidently so but is it is it because it's 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 um it's a weird combination of things or weird construction of things. It or? is um, what is it called? Gastro something, but gastronomy. No, no, like um, it is a combination of chemistry and um the experience of eating, right? So it's not even about the sensation of eating, like the the visceral, or you're chewing on the gristle, you're sucking it down, you're swallowing it, um, but you know it gets kind of like changed and in texture in in form into this horrible like um approximation of what it's like to eat a steak and i think that sometimes when we get into the abstract it is like that so i think my aim is to go from the 
the visceral to the abstract and back into something that is sensual and tactile and and um sort of like physical again which is very hard to do on paper because it's such a cerebral medium right mm. Like you can't enjoy it the way you would enjoy a piece of music. Like you can just play it in the background and just listen to the beat or whatever. Um, and I envy that, right? I really envy like that musicians can um, sort of like have the access to people without even it's it's more low effort rather than putting up a book and being like, oh, I don't fucking understand what this stupid poem is about, right? But I think that that is the goal when when I am trying to write. Um, a poem and I think that's why you feel like you know there's so much tactility there's so many like meaty images and kind of like a, a little bit gross um, coming out I think that that clusterfuck aesthetic is how I remain present in the poem's body I wish shops would carry the clusterfuck aesthetic I think, I think that's a very brilliant marketing term <laughs> I love it so much you know it's like you know collage as well I think that's why I love collage because it is really like it's so arresting and, and overwhelming I think it's interesting you bring up music and okay it's sort of comparatively music uh, visual arts and poetry and writing I think with visual arts and music, there's a little more elements at play. You have different layers of, let's say, for music, you have the beat, the melody, the writing, the subtext. You have a lot more things to, ingredients really, to play around with. But yeah. if we were to put the spotlight on writing, are you able to, to elaborate or and explain what is that? Because to, to the layman, it's just words. But what are some of the elements that we do not see that goes into the construction of, uh, let's say, your writing or your poems? Well, the poems, well, the poets will be very angry that you said that there is not a lot of aspects. I think also because to the layman, yeah, yeah, I know. Like, I think that's also why um spoken word poetry is easier to consume because it's like you know you understand it's a performance. It's somebody speaking words to you for three minutes. Like, it's kind. Sometimes it rhymes and it's kind of like a poem. Or, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a song. Um, but I think um there are these questions right when you sort of like study poetry as to how do you use space how do you use breath in a poem how do you sound like musicality so there is that oral aspect not oral as in like with the mouth but oral as in auditory right um and the idea that the form follows the content which is i think something that i personally try to do as much as i can so if you if you look at the book right there are some poems that take the shape of like the birth control tab or um i forgot um, <laughs> um you know like poems that come from photographs for example right like a lot of like found poetry where i go around singapore and i take photos of stupid signs um but all of these things are ways in which you present your subject matter like if you choose to adopt the language of say a museum uh display placard the wall text like what is that saying to your audience right so even the form itself sort of like communicates like oh you know i'm saying something about this form that is you know like you maybe you should think about that a little bit more so i think i view all of these things and you're right right like um poetry is not the most multimodular of of um, art forms but i think being able to play with that limited um that limited range i guess and expand um the idea of how we can make maybe like a volume of poetry transcend those things is um 
really interesting. Like um, my editor and mentor, Divya Victor, she recently came out with a book called Curb and it's about um, the South Asian, I guess, diaspora experience as well as, you know, like brutality in America. And her book is like an accordion, right? So you open it and it folds out, right? So it's in itself, like the, the physical artifact of the book. It's also really gorgeous and like you know you you can there are many ways to reimagine a book right so i think like that's that's very nice to play with as well and of course like i designed like my my books cover yep. right so i care about these things but maybe other people don't care that much about it so maybe i'm shallow i don't know i think it's immediately appealing when I, when, I, when i looked at it especially the cover it is arresting in a way that it was unexpected i thought it was a encyclopedia at first Aww. of like the 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 morbid curiosity kind but when i looked into it it's like oh, okay it's poetry which is interesting because it's not it's very unconventional thank you <laughs> those are like my, my great grandfather's eyes like on the cover i was wondering whose eyes <laughs> okay okay it's like a bit a little bit disturbing yeah yeah weird right a but little bit. yeah it was yeah. so odd because like my my father just sent it to us in a whatsapp chat and he was like oh this is like your great-grandfather like felt compelled to probably someone was telling him to yeah send. probably and it was so weird because like um a, a cousin of his was doing a family tree and it there were all these very problematic descriptions of oh, our no. family, like, oh, your great grandmother was like raped by her 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 husband, and therefore she bore three children. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's <laughs> oh, no, not nice. Yeah, yeah. And then like there was another um, there was another line where it was like, oh, this guy married a beautiful Malay woman, and then full stop, and that was it. And like everybody else had names. I'm like, bitch. Where's her name? Oh my god, okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, Chinese families, they're like that. Unfortunately. <laughs> They'll cut you off the family tree. <laughs> so in, in, in going back to the topic, you mentioned about your mentor. So uh, I want to ask the question, like, uh, throughout your journey of writing, uh, even up to publishing up to now, have you had any mentors? Um, I mean, I call her my mentor, but that's because she was sort of like a sign. Not a sign, but I... I proposed that she work with me on this book, which was actually um, an an undergraduate like sort of like research project. So um, NTU sort of um, made me make time for it. Yep. Um, and forever after, I, I just kept calling her my mentor because I've learned so much from her, but not not in the way that people usually have mentorships. I don't really know what that would entail in um outside of school right like in a context that was outside of school because how do you just like walk up to someone and tell them hey mentor me is it like asking them out on a date like hey i have all these things at my disposal i think it's two levels down from date but mm -hmm. one level up from a coffee meeting <laughs> yeah and yeah, that's the other thing. Like, how do people network and say, hey, I, I want to, let's go out for a coffee. You're asking the wrong person. It's so <laughs> weird. It's so weird. <laughs> okay, but as a follow-up to that question, um, I'm just curious to know, why did you choose her? Or was it assigned by the school? But I, I just want to know what, what your thought process is when choosing someone like her to, to get feedback from for your work. Why her? Oh, Diffie was just 
an absolute treasure because um she was I think wow because I was in the school's um creative writing and drama club at the mo at that time and then they were like quickly let's get Divya she's young and fresh and she hasn't been chewed up and sped up by the system yet so <laughs> that was the the first impression I got from her but you know I I just thought that she was like this young upstart prof who like or maybe had a lot of energy and like was really idealistic but the more I, I talked to her I realized that oh okay this woman actually knows her shit like it's it's refreshing and gratifying to talk to her in a way that I really did not come to expect from um a lot of people that I met you know so I think it was it was weird because um I was definitely like shopping around for professors at that point because you could choose right mm. so you I would go to like um, these professors um, offices and then sit down and chat with them and I very very nearly went with this other guy who was interested in um, an academic project about linguistics and like queer language and blah 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 but I eventually went with her because um, it was it was like the question like if you really really only had time for one of these things what would you do and um, I think the answer was clear, right? She she kind of just sat me down and said, yeah, I'm totally on board with whatever you want and let's work together to like make this happen. And I think that amount of sort of like confidence that, you know, like we would just massage it into the thing they were supposed to be was, mm, it was quite reassuring. So, I felt safe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. From... Just working together with her to yeah. to push out the final product. Oh yeah, yeah. Devia has like a way of making her students feel very safe, like in any class that she does. Would you be able to elaborate more as to why? What 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 is the safe feeling? I think um in so I took a a creative class of hers uh in the last year that she was teaching at NTU and um I think I was quite struck by the emphasis on. Um, equal learning and equal sharing, even though we were all coming from different places in, in creative writing. Uh, but there was this very, I guess, palpable sense that she cared about you, not just as um, like a student, but also like as a human being. And she would say, okay, you know, like um, make sure it's like uh, a class discussion is like having a bunch of buns on the plate, uh, on the table. And if you have taken too many buns, maybe leave some buns for other people. And if you haven't <laughs> taken any buns, please take a bun. <laughs> so it was like, and then she would go back and, you know, w one time she said the word blind, uh, blinded in, in class. And then she went back and she was like, mm, occluded. Like, yeah, then, you know, it's like that commitment to, to not using ableist language, to making sure that, people of all um, marginalizations feel safe and seen which i find is super difficult to do when you're teaching because like how do you think about that and teach at the same time there unless, is a lot of things to to, exactly. to be aware of yes. yes unless you really do just make it a part of your your everyday life your person so i i respect that a lot you know interesting i'm curious to know what in your opinion, is wholly unique to the medium of writing? Mm. Um, I'm very lazy. So oh, wonderful. I love, Good to know. <laughs> so I love 
So I love writing because there's not a lot of prep time. <laughs> like you don't, it sounds like there is a lot of prep time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, research is one thing, I guess. But the actual act of writing, like for example, if you want to, if you're a painter or you're a potter, you need to go and get your, you know, your clay, your tools. You need to go to the studio. You need to whatever writing. You can do anywhere. You know, like when the mood strikes, you can just even write in your head, and it it doesn't like. I guess it doesn't change the quality of your work. It's it's there, right? It's sort of like a mediumless, as close as you can get to a mediumless medium without it being like a like a folk ditty that people passed down through <laughs> oral tradition, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think that because it is so portable and because it is so easy for people to transmit writing i think there is a, a power in that right like how do you um make sure something sort of like it's it's pretty much the short like the the simplest way to um transmit an idea which i love because um i like communicating <laughs> <laughs> I think all artists do, right? That's why they are artists in if, a way. Whether they're conscious of, or not conscious of it, I think they are, yeah. Yeah. And that connection, right? So like for example, memes. Like not um not visual memes, but just, you know, like catchphrases or whatever. Like mm. as a linguist, that's fascinating to me because when you write a phrase, a stupid nonsense phrase, like fertile and breedable you don't expect that everyone picks up on it and like just runs with it but sometimes they do and i think like that is kind of a marker of how quickly a modern language sort of like evolves and changes but of course like that was happening in the past as well um but it is also accentuated a lot by technology these days yeah definitely so Maybe the question is like, how does writing like now, like how has it evolved as an art form, right? And I mean, I don't think that I would have written half the things that I have written without um, my phone or my laptop or whatever, because it's so much faster. And, you know, to be to have to transfer your longhand onto the computer, <laughs> it's just an undertaking in itself, you know? And... Yeah, I just I just think that when you are a writer, there's a sense that your words, um, as long as language still exists, they'll be produced just like that. You know, it's so easy, and obviously it's dangerous because then you get like quoted out of context in Parliament, right? <laughs> I was only specific. <laughs> so. How do you imagine it changing in the future? Um, I asked this question because when I asked uh, a music producer this question, mm. so he was highlighting how in recent years, Spotify came to uh, popularity. And with that, there is the algorithm, the almighty algorithm, mm. and how it favors uh, tracks that has a certain structure. Structure meaning, um, let's say for the intro, it's not too long, yeah. it's not too short, and it kind of outcasts a lot of songs where traditionally there might be a longer intro, there might be a longer build-up. So I'm just curious to know from your perspective, how do you see uh, the form of writing or the meaning of writing changing within the next two to even five years as the technology keeps up? I think there was a recent article about how um, the generative AI has, 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 has gotten so good that it can write an article that some people might not even know that it's written by uh, an AI. Yeah. Yeah. Um 
I mean, if you're talking about how do you make your work popular on, um, with the help of the algorithm or, you know, in spite of the algorithm, then I feel like that's not, um, that's not something I'm very good at, I think. Like, um, I love technology and I love social media, but I also hate, um, when people sort of like, produce things solely for social media i think that you know um yeah whatever right the rise of insta poetry and insta poetry yeah so oh i thought you were laughing just now because you you were thinking about that so you know like lang leave or rupee core i've heard of rupee core yeah so i mean um these women basically sort of like have a, a brand of insta poetry that is quite very popular actually like i think rupicor is the most um maybe most read poem poet in I history the, i think, I think, think book apart the, from homer i think it's the book with the black cover and the white text yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. milk and honey <laughs> yeah. um but that's the thing like she doesn't need to have a book because so many people read her poems every single day and um there is a certain power in that i think so yeah definitely right like in any in any kind of platform there will be people who write it specifically for that platform Mm. and um i think it it sort of leaves behind a lot of people who don't want to play the social media game i see a lot of writers like bemoaning that they have to kind of like create content for Mm. their social media like candles or whatever um and that's cool and all but like i i think it should be normalized that we don't feel obliged to perform um it's like that Missy Elliott lyric, like none of your writing songs too concerned with fashion, you know? That, <laughs> that was a very obscure reference. What song is that? <laughs> I don't remember. But I always think about that when I like post a cute selfie. I'm like, I'm not writing. I'm too obsessed with fashion. <laughs> How do you grapple with social media? Oh, I just shit post. Like, oh, fantastic. <laughs> I think that um, it takes the pressure off. Like I see people with like really nice um, social media, like curated social media feeds, and I just think it's so tiring. <laughs> I I like being messy. I like um I like the feeling that I can post something extremely weird and awful, and people will be like, "Yeah, that's just Marilyn." <laughs> It's okay. You know, like, you give yourself permission and, you know, to not be, um, whatever. Because I don't, I don't think I could do that anyway. I don't think I could present something polished and something uniformly hot, right? Like, for example, you know, like a lot of influences are just like uniformly hot all the time. Uniformly hot. I've never heard that description before. I mean, they are, they are genuinely, I'm, I'm sure they are genuinely hot in real life as well, right? But it's every single picture. It's like, wow, you're gorgeous. You're gorgeous. You're gorgeous. And like, I think that, I mean, first of all, I don't think I can do that because like, I don't have the looks for it. But at the same time, it's also like, why isn't it, does, doesn't it get boring you know like don't you want to fuck it up a little bit sometimes um but maybe that's not the platform for it i don't know who knows right and i think that's also the reason why i'm not very good at social media even though i enjoy it do you think the idea of social media and the fact that everyone now has a brand or it really is a brand and has to perform to a certain degree it influences the the type of what the art they want to create I think there's a lot of pressure to define that brand, right? And then the easier it is for the 
the publisher or the market to sort of like categorize you, then the easier it is to say, okay, if you liked this, maybe you mm. like this, right? Um, yeah, but I think also then that it becomes like there's a certain power in being uncategorizable, which is why I kind of struggle with being like, oh yeah, I'm a writer, I'm a writer. Yeah, so if... um. I kind of worry that, you know, if I just call myself a writer the whole time, but I'm not actually writing, <laughs> I'm not posting about writing, then it's not truth, like not truthful in, mm. in a certain way. But this this goes back to the to the initial idea about identity. Like if, yeah. like what does it mean to identify as a writer? Is it like you're writing X amount per week, per day? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? That'll be peak productivity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I actually can imagine for your next book, like you write about memes. Like I don't know why, but I can picture you doing that. <laughs> like you exploring It'll be the idea. Fun, right? I've, I, I don't know, but I think from my perspective, when I think about what you've done and I, I, look, I look at some of the imagery you've conjured, I think, I think the idea of doing memes wouldn't be too far of a deviation from your brand <laughs> yeah. yeah i guess so whatever that brand is <laughs> whatever that brand is um i'm curious to know would you ever or have you ever written in a different language before and if so what uh is, is that different from writing in english um i have but it's very bad because i'm quite aggressively monolingual aggressively model okay okay yeah because um i i just don't think I'm I like to do things that I'm good at and I think are worth people's time and if I try to write in say Mandarin a language that I am notoriously terrible in um, it's like who's gonna read this and what for you know like how is it gonna contribute to, to their life in any way but I think that okay so I've done things like translated um, maybe like songs from Mandarin into English and you know like vice versa or whatever but in my personal life not like oh public. that was a profession okay. no 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 I was like, like wow can you imagine wow. I can't imagine like <laughs> you know the amount that translators get paid is amazing anyway um, yeah but it's always been sort of weirdly intimate like because I think Mandarin for a lot of people and especially for a lot of like Chinese Singaporeans holds a lot of trauma in like um language learning because they were forced to learn it when they yep. don't 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 speak it at home right yep. and um for me to kind of reclaim that and say oh now it's a language of love or it's a language where I'm trying to express affection to somebody else is quite um quite daunting and quite um it's quite a vulnerable process, I think. I've heard and I've been told that uh, the Chinese language is actually quite beautiful. Oh, it's, do you not speak Chinese? I can understand it. Okay. I can speak it when I need to. Uh, I speak it exceptionally well when I'm ordering food because <laughs> you have to know that. <laughs> oh, is it not just chaka <laughs> uh, No, no, not at all. Like, it's down to the specific, but oh. it's, it's not a... Going back to the idea of being recluse, it's yeah. just you don't meet people and you don't speak Chinese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of all those things where you learn growing up in Singapore yeah. and you just park it as like a folder in your back of your head. And let's yeah. say when you're ordering food, you know yeah. what the food is. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, I mean, I think my partner's like Mandarin is better than mine in some aspects. <laughs> like it's kind of amazing. Like the aunties will be talking shit about her, and then she'll be like, "我知道你们讲什么." Oh shit! That means like, yeah, I know what you guys are talking about. Then they'll be like, oh, "A brown person speaking Mandarin." <laughs> It shouldn't be that much of a shock in 2021. It should not. Yeah. I mean, look at Pretty Please, right? Like, Amanda is excellent, but um, it still is for for a lot of racist Singaporeans. And um, I just feel like I wish I was better at Mandarin because, um, you know, it's always nice to have something like that in your arsenal. You can like, it, it comes in handy, but it's not something that I found myself needing to use a lot. Um, that being said though it's also kind of privileged to say like oh I don't need this language because like my mm. English is so excellent you know a lot of people don't have access to that either mm. um, but yeah it's 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 a complicated kind of um, like relationship I've often wished that I could read Chinese because there's a lot of like extremely kinky like Mandarin fic- uh, fan fiction out there that I want to like access. But, but it's in Chinese. Yeah. It's like hieroglyphs, <laughs> man. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So so reading, so um, talking conversational Chinese is, or Mandarin is fine. Yeah. But I think reading Chinese is a oh, different ballgame. Yeah. It's so tiring. I've, I'll, I'll, I'll get through three lines. I'm like, I can't do this. I need to get <laughs> off. Like, it's not anything. But it seems like writing ready. writing poems for the next book in Chinese seems like the type of uh, uphill challenge that you will take on. It sounds interesting. Now, yeah, come to think about it, but I I don't know. It just seems like oh, another bilingual poet, you know, trying to be bilingual, but actually cannot make it. <laughs> Have you ever thought about learning a different language apart from Chinese? Though? Yeah, I mean, um, I did do a couple of semesters of Spanish when I was in polytechnic, but that did not go well I mean it didn't it did not go well it was, it was more like nobody wanted to continue and I also did um, sign language um, which was really fun I, I really enjoyed sign language actually because it's um, I mean you obviously know right like um, I know of sign language yeah you know yeah. okay fine I mean you've seen people signing right so the interesting part is before before these past couple of months I would say no mm. but I've been recently watching uh, Twitch uh-huh. and I've been recently watching this uh, this game on Twitch called VR Chat. Okay. So it's virtual reality chat. So it's people putting on a virtual headset and they go into the space and they converse and they talk. And I've seen a lot of sign languages in that because there are some people there that might be too afraid to speak. They might oh. not be willing to speak oh. and they do sign language. Right. And some of them, they're not able to speak as well. Yeah. So they do a lot of sign language. So it's like, Huh, this is interesting. Not the place I would imagine uh, looking at sign language, but uh, very interesting. Oh, that's so cool. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I realized that it's really good for, you know, like um, crowded spaces where you can't hear each other and like you're across the room and then you just sign to the person. Oh, it's great. And then all of your friends are like, why you're saying? <laughs> why are you saying about us? Just like, no, I just want to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, um... But that in itself, it's it's more it's more physical than you know like any other verbal language. So I find that doing um, signing is it's not even like a lang a language in the way that we think about language as composed of words, but more like another means of communication. Mm. I think mm. um, so. That's a brilliant way to put it, actually. Yeah, but I'm I'm just. 
an amateur at, at sign language so I don't know like you know the syntax or like the you know like the rules of sign language and sometimes you know when I when I when I sign it's always like oh I don't know the sign for this word so I'm just gonna spell it out like a toddler <laughs> <laughs> you know and then it's it's quite um it's quite fun to feel like oh you're bad at something but you're doing your best to connect with somebody else right and um because you are signing it's um i think it's more intimate sometimes because i can speak to you without looking at you right i can just like look over there and you've obviously noticed i'm not very good at eye contact because like it interrupts my train of thought um but when you sign you have to look at the person right there's no way you're gonna look at the wall and sign and you have to make sure that they are looking at you mm-hmm. right? and they understand and they look at what you're signing yes yeah. yes and sometimes they're like okay like do it again like I, I didn't catch that right so it's um i think it makes it forces you to be more present than you would in like a verbal conversation interesting yeah so i don't know like that's that's also interesting to think about like what is you know like language and how do we expand the boundaries of that I mean, it's been said in the English language we all know. It's terribly shitty. Oh, <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it's just badly constructed. It is not enough. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think you can say the same for all languages. And that has to do with like culture as well, right? Like um, there, are, there are little blind spots in every language that we just don't get to use. But English is just... The lowest tier. <laughs> kind of a magnificent beast, actually. Right? I think I mean, when I first found out that there were missing words uh, in the English language that is more represented, say, in, let's say, Japanese, yeah, Chinese, yeah. Uh, German, uh, Swedish language, I think it's like, whoa, there's missing words. It's like, oh, it's like words that you can't... Uh, they basically fill the gaps, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like listening to anybody, um, code switching between two languages, you kind of, I, I like, um, I like when people speak like Mandarin and the English and the Mandarin again because sometimes they'll they'll know like exactly what the concept is in Mandarin, but you know, like so they'll say it in Mandarin, then you kind of want to translate it, but you can't because the like the disdain or the the like the amount of like complexity that is inherent in those words is kind of lost right if you just say oh you know like um i can't i can't think of an example right now but you know, <laughs> you know what i mean i believe you just described singlish yeah singlish is also like super beautiful <laughs> very evocative it's very practical very e- economic language i think yeah in, in moving on, and I guess in, in taking the, the conversation to a close, I'm just curious to know, are there any other forms of mediums of creativity that you are drawn to? Um, I ask this question because in in addition to your poetry, I believe the visuals that you use, um, be in the form of video mm. or like images, mm. are particularly strong as well. So I'm just curious to know, like, are there any forms like films, uh, audiobooks, um, painting, like all these other things like, are you drawn to anyone in particular? In particular, um, not really. I'm kind of a slut, so like I just love. So a snob and a slut. Wonderful. Yes. Okay. <laughs> a snut. <laughs> I love um, sort of dabbling in new mediums. I really like uh, the process of video editing because. Wait, uh, what? 
yeah, yeah, I like it. I, I know it's very tedious, but I love it. I've never heard anybody say they really like the process of video editing. It's I mean, mostly the filming, the conceptualizing, but yeah, not I the video know. editing. But it's like, okay, when you film something and then when you get to edit it, you're like, oh, look at all these like shitty pieces of footage. Now I'm going to put them together to make them like um, extremely weird and less shitty, you know? And I think being able to see the process and sometimes I'll be... Because I've, I've done uh, amateur video projects, right? And then sometimes I'll just be laughing to myself as like I edit. I'm just like, oh my God, this is going to be so funny. Like when I when I put it together, and then like you make an, like an executive decision that it's just like, this is going to be hilarious when you watch it. <laughs> and um, I think, yeah, I just like um, art forms that allow you to do that, allow, allow a certain level of improvisation, of experimentation, like collage as well. You never know, like, you know, like what images work well together until you juxtapose yeah, them. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, this is <laughs> like kind of striking, you know, in its own way. Um, so the surprise yeah. of how or the confluence of different things coming yes. together is, is quite genuine as well. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you do that sometimes when you're you're creating something visual and then you're like, eh, eh, quite nice, eh? I, I think yes and no. Um, It depends on what kind of uh space or really hate space that I'm creating from. It right. depends on how vivid the imagery is. Mm. Uh, like, let's say if you have a very vivid imagery, then you're kind of just following the roadmap or you're being guided by something that you can't see. Yeah. But if it's more like, uh, like, 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 like the being just drops you in, in a point in time and you're just figuring it out. I think mm. I think that's particularly beautiful as well because if everything's so predictable, if you're able to predict what you're going to create, I think that's I don't think you'll be in the in, in the arts anymore. Yeah. Because that's kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I was wondering because like some people, they kind of plan out everything beforehand, right? And then they're like, okay, it's going to look exactly like this. And then they do it and it does look exactly like it. And I'm just like, how did you do that? You know, like, um, I mean, I can't because I'm a very disorganized person, but um, good to know that you don't do it either. <laughs> <laughs> My room would suggest otherwise. I see. Yeah. So in closing, I have two more questions. Okay. Um, I'm curious to know, like, are there certain... Are there any poems or writings or even books that you would like to experience again for the first time? Wow. Um, films and books. I guess um, I really enjoy, um, yeah, like films that I find fascinating in the twist. Like you kind of, but then again, like a lot of my favorite films have very like high rewatchability value right so like Toy um, Story no, no. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean like yeah like Hercules but uh, you know um, have I don't know if you've watched Visitor Q so that's my favorite movie and it opens with the line have you ever done it with your dad and then it like starts from there anyway it's, it's about this dysfunctional family made less dysfunctional by a violent visitor called Visitor Q and blah 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 um so a lot of these films, right, um, I watch because they are just so kind of a little bit insane and, and um, weird, but comforting in their weirdness at the same time. So maybe I, I would like to um, rewatch them when I'm not expecting it. But 
I'm not the kind of person who's like, oh, it's a spoiler. Then like my my, you know, enjoyment of the thing is like lessened because mm. of it. I think that's kind of cheapening. Like you know, so your whole the whole value of your media is based on this one yep. like twist. Yep. You know, um, for books, I think um, things like uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle or uh, Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts. Um, these are books that kind of like amazed and and blew my mind when I first read them. And I think like maybe experiencing them again as the person I am now would be different. I'm not sure if they would be less enjoyable. I like highly suspect so, <laughs> right? But it would be interesting. Or you could glean something least. that you might not have noticed before. Yeah, or you could be like, actually, this wasn't kind of an annoying writer. <laughs> <laughs> that is a particularly insightful insight as well. I guess so. What about poems? Um, poems. Or or just writings in general, not not in a in a book format, but just writings. Yeah. I kind of wish that. I felt the the same way that I did when I was self like discovering uh, the writings of Alfian for the first time, you know, because um, that was kind of the first time that I felt like I could recognize the person that I was in the society that I was, and the anger and the sort of like um, this this feeling like you were in. A country or you were in a system that didn't really care for you right so a lot of that sort of like um adolescent anger is there and feeling seen like that is something that's super valuable and rare i think to me um maybe not those books in particular for the first time but that feeling like i'm always trying to chase that feeling you know doesn't that feeling taper off want to get past a certain age it should right like but I don't know I think good maybe good poetry makes you feel seen at all ages Mm. or at least that's what I like to believe (laughs) I don't know so my last question uh, for this podcast is what is your craft craft meaning your writing and your poetry witchcraft (laughs) all witchcraft what has it taught you about yourself oh um I think it's taught me that I'm actually quite, um, I care. I, I didn't think that I would care as much as I did, right? So I'm, maybe I'm more of a perfectionist than I thought. And I thought that, you know, maybe I don't have an ego or I don't have a certain expectation of myself or ambition, right? But I think that, it's shown me that you do have standards. It's just very different from like your your parents' standards or, you know, like your teacher's standards. And I think that discovering that QC, right? That like marker of quality for yourself and like the baby factory that you are is um totally different. Um it's I mean it's not different. It's an invaluable experience in marking out what belongs to you and what is valuable to you it sounds wholly unique to you really yeah full of holes and unique cheese what is your what is your relationship like with perfection oh i kind of spit on it but at the same time i want to achieve it you know it's like i don't want to be perfect in the way that people envision perfection but i want to be perfect to myself Mm. 
you know it's a very self-absorbed thing I think that's what we humans can strive for I mean I mean being self-absorbed seems like the most humanness of traits I guess yeah but I, I think I'm always struggling with that like how do you how do you be authentic to yourself and yet not be self-absorbed I don't think self-indulgent I don't think the two are relatable or even uh talking about the same things I think mm. you can both can exist on itself because I think it's it, it belongs to like a healthy self-image or even like a healthy uh image not just self-image uh like like a healthy uh idea of yourself yeah like I I personally feel that it's important to know um your strengths and your weaknesses really like with that you know what you can do you can you you, you know to the best of your ability what you're about and with that you can look to to try certain things. You can dabble. You can know what uh, what 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 to move towards. It is. I feel that it's it is in the unknowing mm. that is a bit. Uh, how would I say? The uncertainty could be unsettling. Yeah, but also kind of exciting, right? It's like, oh, I want to find out something ugly that I didn't about myself before. I have to wait for you to introduce me introduce to me to the ugly side. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I've I've always believed uh I guess it's always a balance between like order and chaos, like the certainty and uncertainty. I mean yeah. I don't think one can live in complete uncertainty. Yeah. I think that is that is hell. I mean complete uncertainty. But living in a society, there are certain things that are quite structured. There are certain certain things. Yeah. Certainty to that. And I think it is also quite um important to to take comfort in those things yeah i think maybe the word i'm looking for is like self-awareness like you know you know yourself but you also know that there are certain pockets of potential that you don't you haven't explored yet right and then like when you do something and you know you're bad at it but you still do it it's very liberating as oh, well yeah 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 it just it's just painful when like people don't know that they're bad but they continue to do it they're like mm. I, th- I think I think it depends on the what is the word for it the the ultimate goal I guess if you're doing something that is um, you can be bad at it but I guess everybody has to start somewhere and yeah. ultimately if it's just for themselves and yeah I think it's interesting or so yeah I think it's very important to be intentional with your mediocrity or like you know the, the shit that you are doing purely for pleasure which I find isn't done a lot or we don't have a lot of space for that in Singapore you know because everybody's like well if you're not good at it then why are you doing it like don't waste your time that is that is one of the unfortunate realities that when we conflate or when we try to push I guess the idea of art or or creating into having to earn money or having to to let's say create a product at the end of the day I feel that that is ultimately quite detrimental yeah to a certain degree like if like like my personal thoughts are that if you're able to create wholly for yourself technically if and if you're smart about it I think the the money and the business side should come after but ultimately it should be the creator's intent on what to create yeah but it's also kind of upsetting because like I know a lot of creatives who are very good creatives but very terrible business people 
I mean, it's I mean, diametrically opposed attributes, really. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it's painful, you know. Like I wish that we could all kind of live in a society where, like, oh, it's the village artist's turn to just make beautiful things, and we'll just feed them after that. Do you feel That'd the need? Okay, I'm I'm just curious for this. Um, do you feel the need that these days for creatives there is a need for them to be business persons as well? There is a need for them to cover that side that. Um, perhaps in, in the past someone else could do it but right now because uh, social media and everything you are like a brand you have to you have to know the, the, the whole business but you have to negotiate with people you have to even talk to people and stuff like that yeah gig economy baby uh, <laughs> I think that it's it's not it yeah definitely like the the pressure is on to be like okay I'm the person who can do everything for myself I can pull myself up by my by my own bootstraps and <laughs> you know, whatever, like achieve success all by myself. Um, which is kind of nice because a lot of the processes that used to be closed off to people like self-publishing or even just like drop shipping a new like printed notebook or whatever, it's all become so accessible to us for better or worse. And but I think the the problem with that is when um you become sort of like you don't know how to resource help for yourself you don't you can't really um sort of like organize in a way that is useful to both you and other people you know because i think sometimes people forget that art is not just about your individual success as an artist as well it's also about creating space and that what that's what makes it different from um, corporations or you know like for-profit businesses i think making like um, business from art has been going on forever i mean look at the nfts right like <laughs> money laundering and art mm, they go hand in hand so i i don't think it's a new idea i just feel like people get sucked into that trap because they see everyone doing it and then they feel like oh well that's what success means now so in closing, um, what does success mean to you right now? Wow, my friend Winnie just asked me about this. Um, I think that success is about being able to being able to do the things you want to do in the time that you want to do them, right? Whether or not that means um being able to have enough leisure time to do the things that really do fulfill you or being able to have the platform that you want to do the things on the scale that you want to do them. Um, and I think being able to sustain yourself based solely on creating or um, producing the things that you actually do want to produce is sort of like the pipe dream for I think any creative, right? Like you, you don't want to have to hustle just to be able to support your art habit. Definitely. So I think that's that's the goal, manifesting it. <laughs> Witchcraft. Yeah. Okay. In in closing, where can people find your work? Uh, where are you uh, uh, available online? Um, where can people buy your books and stuff like that? Everything. Plug yourself. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um. Well, I'm usually on Instagram at marilyn.orificial. That's O-R-I-F-I-C-I-A-L, orificial. Oh, sorry, if you don't know how to spell my name. <laughs> um, 
look at the podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, the book is sold by Ethos. You can just search gays back, not gays as in homosexuals, but G-A-Z-E, gays back, uh, Ethos books, and you'll find it. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Grinchfucker. I'm supposed to get a website up, but I have not. But if you Google me, you'll probably find me anyway. And what do one have to search to find the mythical cat boys you were talking about? Just oh curious. My God. Um, on just, TikTok. Just go and like look at the hashtag cat boy. It's okay, hashtag all cat boy. there, baby. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your king. <laughs> all right. Um, thank you, Marilyn. This has been a fantastic time and a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much, Kevin. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired. If you enjoyed what you heard thus far, do give us a follow on Instagram. And don't forget to share and subscribe. Stay tuned for the next episode.